Welcome to Red Eye, a conversation series where V and I sit down and have the type of conversation you would have on a red eye flight late at night when the world is asleep. All sorts of thoughts can pop into your mind and we keep those things thoughtful and entertaining as we discuss these ideas. Today, we are recording this red eye segment from a Tesla charger in Dallas while V and I are on a business trip. This feels like a true red eye, bro. Yeah, it's amazing technology, what technology allows you to do. Um... Shout out to Apple for this voice memos app. Uh, the recording quality is pretty amazing. The fact that we're actually able to record a episode in the car off of a phone is is pretty sick. Yeah, I, I completely agree, dude. And it's like, it's a beautiful, beautiful, like, rainy day in Dallas, too, which really, I think, adds to the vibe of the type of conversations we like to have. Like, I'm definitely a rainy weather conversation personality. <laughs> we'll, we'll see if... Uh, if if the rainy weather holds our holds our emotions in check, because we've got some lightning rod topics uh, to discuss this week. I uh, think we should probably start with, you know, our favorite weekly topic is our update on the A situation. Uh, just got dropped by CAA. But essentially, he's been dropped by basically every, every source of his capital since he came out and just went heavily anti-Semitic. And... Uh, you know, this is this is a, a sad situation to be watching, and I think we might truly be witnessing, and it really depends on our media, in my view, but we might be witnessing the end of, uh, of Kanye's career and relevance. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, he has extracted enough value from um, the world where he's, he's perfectly set financially, but any, when you look at the personality type, you know he doesn't trade on capital, he trades on attention. So this is a, a pretty significant uh, challenge for him. It's completely fine if the system or the powers that be turn their backs on you if you have a truly loyal fan base that sticks with you. But the, cha- the thing that Kanye has done is at the same time he's trying to fight the man, whatever he, he, he calls that, he's also alienating all of his core fans and people that would normally support him when the system would be turning on him and so it's like he's he's not doing himself any favors and you're really sadly witnessing someone with mental health issues truly deteriorate and then not have anyone in his corner to save him from himself yeah and i think we said this last week but this this hill that he's dying on is a strange hill to die on because there's yeah the whole the whole like going extremely anti-Semitic against the record industry and against like, you know, the banks and, you know, basically like all the kind of core elements of society that, that he really relies on for the career that he's built is a, it's a strange choice because I think the same criticisms he's lobbying against those that, you know, are in power, uh, quote unquote, could be lobbied against him by people who are trying to make it to the same situation he's in. 
Yeah, it just doesn't add up. The logical reasoning isn't there. So that's why you know this is just literally a, a, a train falling off the tracks and everybody's enjoying witnessing it, which is the, the truly sad part about it. You know, I don't, I don't think I can remember the last time I watched like this extended of a burnout by anybody. Can you? No. No, I haven't. And I think, you know, what they always say in, in life is that, you know, if you keep poking at a bear, eventually the bear is going to fight back. And I think that's what he's dealing with. He's been poking the bear in so many different ways, thinking that he's Teflon. And he's realizing now that he's not. What do you think makes, like, what do you think makes Kanye feel so much like the world's against him? That's always been the part that puzzled me about it, was that evidence would show that the majority of the world is, like, very much on his side. Well, I think, you know, and this is true for anyone, you can't escape the the psychological trauma and issues that you dealt with growing up. And I think Kanye, early in his career, specifically in the industry that he's in, hip-hop, he didn't fit the mold, and it can be brutal when you don't fit the mold. He was made fun of, he was picked on, he was... He was, he did deal with real trauma in his life. And no matter how much success he got, that trauma is still going to be there. You know, say money doesn't, doesn't, doesn't solve your problems. It actually accelerates them. And this is truly a case of that. In my opinion, I think he's still in his head the, the, the backpack rapper who the industry did not want to embrace and that's that's how he lives his life. No matter how much acceptance he's gotten, he still feels like he's he's the underdog and he's not accepted by the world. Yeah, it's you know it's such a great point. It's this this um, fixation with who we were in the past, and I don't think it's just Kanye that that deals with this. But I know a lot of people um, who just can't let go of their past identities, and they need to constantly tell you about things that happen to them, you know, further and further back as their life goes on. And you tend to see that people who are attached to their past in that way live in a sense of a false reality. They've created an image around their themselves and in the way that they experience the world, and they're running everyone's actions through this lens that essentially perpetuates whatever they want to create for themselves, and it's typically pain. And when you watch Kanye, it's like, I know so many people who are who are just so attached to the past in that same way that they can't let it go. Whatever whatever happened to them or whatever went on, it's just like it's like don't you see that, you know, especially in today in his in his current present, it's like, dude, you've got kids you could be spending your time with. You don't need to spend it on Twitter and Instagram. You know what I mean? You've got like people you could be creating with. You there's like always a positive thing you could be doing with your energy. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that kind of closes out this topic. It's un it's just an unfortunate thing, and there's a lot of, like, cautionary lessons um, in this tale that I think can be taken from it, and I also think it do it's not helpful to the situation, um, but it is the reality. People really do enjoy seeing train wrecks like this happen and watching them, and they actually enjoy seeing it happen, and that's really... The other sad thing about this is just a reminder of how terrible we all are as human beings. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really true. Man, um, what, uh, what else? What's your next topic? 
Well, you know, <laughs> let's talk a little British politics. The train wreck that's been happening there over the last year to two years and the train wreck of British politics probably since the dawn of time. Uh, anybody who's watched C-SPAN knows when you watch the parliamentary sessions, you don't know how anything gets done <laughs> in Britain because it's literally just people yelling at each other to create a show all day. But this one really stood out to me, Liz Truss. Um, was in power as prime minister for a whopping 44 days um, before she resigned. And her resignation um, and her reward for failure is $116,000 uh, annual stipend or monthly stipend. Uh, I'm not sure if it was annual or monthly. Don't quote me on it. Either way, um, that's a pretty strong reward for the rest of your life for failing. And it's one of those things that I think is one of the underlying issues in society, the whole idea of um, guaranteed state pensions, guaranteed federal pensions um, for life for these people, specifically for working for the government, no matter how good or bad they were at the job. Um, and then the second part of this, which is very interesting, which we'll, we'll touch on after we talk about Liz Truss, is that she has been replaced with the first Indian prime minister, um, in the UK, which has a lot, lot of interesting backstories to it. But let's focus on the Liz Truss situation uh, first and foremost. What were your thoughts when you uh, saw first the resignation and then essentially the reward she received for <laughs> resigning? Yeah. Well, if you actually go back, what, six episodes, you will, re you will hear our coverage of her getting elected, <laughs> you know, as prime minister. Um, I, I think it's, it's a weird... It's a weird thing, because you had the Queen pass, I think it was like 12 days into her tenure, and clearly it's, it sounded like, from the articles that I read, after she spoke with the new king, the consensus was that she was going to step down. And for everybody who loves to talk about how, oh, like, you know, the, the royal family are figureheads, they're not that involved in politics, like, clearly they're involved in politics. And to me, like, that was that was something that I feel like was missed a little bit in a lot of the commentary here around this is everyone's focused on, oh, should they rejoin the EU? Should they do this? Should they do that? And it's just like, let's, let's just rewind a little bit and let's see how much the impact of royal family that's, you know, really not supposed to have that much influence on the parliamentary system is able to influence even who's leading their country and swap that person out. Now, I don't know much about Rishi Sunak, but the other thing that I thought was interesting is that this is the fifth conservative prime minister to have stepped down in five years now, and the majority of them were in the last like year and a half. It, it's been a very tumultuous time over there, but I'm I'm not necessarily understanding why that party. And I, I know it's like a political system thing, but just from a rationality standpoint, if that party has tried and failed five times, you know. First of all, no one's really assessing what is the reason for failure. Here, she just kind of stepped down um, because some plan she had suggested was like not liked, I guess, within the first month, and so they used that as an excuse to quit. It's like, where's the like something doesn't add up about that? Where's the reason to stop for any of these prime ministers, and why do they keep switching each other out so quickly? Like, it doesn't really make any sense if you're trying to get something done. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, and it's it's unfortunate, but it just 
you know, the global state of um, politics and government is, is definitely shaken um, with the challenges that have come from COVID and now the, the economic turmoil. It's, it's, it's not a good recipe um, for stability. Um, and there are a lot of challenges that it takes. It, it really is going to take a dynamic leader or a series of leaders to kind of pull um, the world out of these of, out of these out of these combined challenges uh, that have come. But it's just very interesting too to me when you understand the background of colonialism, um, the fact that they now have turned to an Indian. Um, prime minister uh to solve the problems and i said this also when obama was elected essentially they'll put a minority in power when they know that all the chips are stacked against them um to say hey we, we you know this is a country that that accepts uh that has grown and accepts equality we were worried about the history of colonialism. Look at the step, you know, this grand gesture that Britain is taking. We even have an Indian prime minister now. Um, look at us, you know, and look at our growth. <laughs> but the reality is there's uh, the reason for his him being put in position is because they really do think that he's going to fail. <laughs> you know, it's like, everyone's failing over there like i don't even know what success looks like and i think that's one of the big problems that the uk has over the last five to ten years is leading up into brexit you know there was no clarity on on where that country was trying to go when they pulled out it was really more due to you know race at the end of the day it was due to um intolerance and difference in values from from europe that they they had this kind of group that you know I think everyone I knew who was British was like, oh, that vote's not going to go through, and then it goes through. And now there's, there's calls to rejoin the EU. Whether that's the right call or not is a totally separate issue, but overall I think where where the UK is struggling is they, they lack vision as a country. It doesn't seem like they, there's any semblance of a clue as to what they're trying to solve from a problem perspective. Yeah, and I think it's also a challenge that all of these kind of European countries um, are facing um, because the growth prospects are not there the same way. The systems, um, that even though they're democracies, the way that they're structured, there isn't much room for new innovation, um, nor is there the same level of opportunity um, for innovation that the United States and other places in the world, um, including China, are encouraging it's the, the possibilities in these kind of older European countries. They are much more, much more aligned with socialism than they are true um, capitalism and and growth. And that's the other challenge that they're facing, specifically because they can't just exploit the resources. And this goes back to the end of colonialism. They just can't exploit the resources of other countries. These countries have really faced challenges as a result of that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's very true, and I think when you look at a lot of the colonialism and you know the countries that that are in power now, I think we're experiencing a moment in world history where you know there's no there's no desire to conquer more, right? It's a lot of unwinding, and you have that unwinding happening, and you have a tremendous identity crisis coming from that. You know, I think about like I think you could take the same example and you could apply it to race, like in. In all countries, you know, 
there's been, or most, there's been some sort of racial hierarchy of some sort. I think when you look at the folks that are in power, as they're starting to wake up from a consciousness standpoint and work to make society a little bit more fair, there's more and more of those people around the world doing that. I think the question is starting to arise as a society that we have to answer, which is, what is fair? I think domestically we've had this this push ever since, you know, BLM and, um, you know, a lot of the mod, I would say the like 2020s, um, kind of, uh, resurgence of the civil rights movement and, you know, our conversations on race in this country that really started, um, in the mid 2010s, we have had a lot of conversation about trying to make things more fair. And it, it's easy when you're talking about things like that are visible, like a cop shooting somebody or, you know, intolerance, you know, that's that visual. And we moved into this conversation about systematic intolerance over the last presidency. And systematic intolerance is still something that you can measure, evaluate with data, and try and put provisions into fix. But even, even then, you know, when you get to the part of the conversation that I feel that we're at now, I think there's a lack of vision in terms of what a, what a fair and equal society looks like because it doesn't look like everyone's the same, you know? It looks like everyone fills their role. And I think we haven't necessarily come together as a society to, def- to define what that is. And I think it remains, you know, a major roadblock in all, in all of our development toward creating a better, better world for everyone. Yeah, um, 100%, 100%. It's an interesting, entering space. We do have to take a moment to uh, to shout out um, Rishi uh, Sanuk for, for getting the opportunity um, uh, to be prime minister. Hopefully hopefully he makes a measurable impact. You know, you've always got to stay optimistic. The doom and gloom um, is easy to buy into, but, you know, hopefully uh, the UK gets it together. Yeah. Seriously, that's a that's an interesting one for sure. Yep. Moving on, you know, uh, another topic uh, that's been in the headlines, obviously since COVID, um, but the continuing uh, college enrollment decline in the U.S. And the latest data from the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center indicated that 662,000 fewer students enrolled in undergraduate programs in spring 22. Uh, than a year earlier, a decline of almost 4.7%. Um, and that enrollment also um, also declined. Graduate and professional student enrollment also declined 1% uh, from last year, despite it being kind of a popular thing that people were doing during COVID, was going back to school, going back to graduate school. Those numbers are declining as well. Um, this follows some research by NPR in January of 22 that said there were almost a million less students enrolled um, in undergraduate uh, uh, studies than a year before as well. Um, this is a very interesting development, kind of underlying kind of the changing attitude uh, amongst Gen Z um, about the value proposition of college. Uh, that's been a conversation we've had internally uh, amongst our peers for a long time, the actual value um, of getting a college education um, and the return on investment for it is something I think a lot more kids are challenged. It's not just, hey, I graduate. What's the next step? I'm going to college. That 
seems to be some changing attitude there. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. I think there's also this um, this shift in purpose that's being brought into the workforce, and you have a lot of Gen Z instead of asking, you know, like what do you want to be when you grow up, and them picking from the list of potential careers. It's more like they want to do something that's very unique to them, and there's no system you can put someone into to do something that's unique to them. I think there's a there's a big challenge for universities to be able to connect with the new generation on that level and show them that they're not just putting them into an institutionalized mechanism that's going to turn them out with a bunch of debt and essentially put them in you know a tough situation for the rest of their lives because all that knowledge is now available for these kids. They're they're a lot better educated when they're making this decision. So it's good uh, from my lens because it holds universities more accountable in terms of really asking the question, what value are degrees creating for the students instead of focusing on where a lot of that conversation is, which is from the board of trustees of the state that's being funded by corporations who are saying, what do we need for, you know, for workers? And instead of judging off of this metric of making people employable, there's a shift happening where people don't want to be employable. They want to be valuable. Yeah, I think there's that. And I think there's also an element that we have to just be, be honest with. Some of these kids are the, the idea and the culture of working hard is declining um, as well. Because the thing, of, the thing about going to college is it is a unique challenge. What I will say is the value proposition for me uh, in going to college and then getting a graduate education wasn't the education itself, but what it taught me about how to accomplish and complete something that isn't just something that's an immediate satisfaction, but it's something that takes time to complete. I think there's value in that, and the other value in that is the network that you develop. But I don't think that a lot of students going to college think about it that way. They just assume there are tons of majors that have no value at all. I don't think that it's okay to have a a student spend $60,000 a year for four years uh, to get a a degree in history, right? That should not cost that much to get a degree in history, considering what the employment's, or to be a teacher uh, when you come out of school. It, it, those, it just doesn't add up in most majors. Now, the professional degrees, they still have a value proposition, but I know, personally know physicians and lawyers who've been out practicing making $200,000 a year who still are inundated with their student debt from the years of going to, going to college. So there's, there's definitely that element uh, of it too. And then the final thing that I would, uh, I would say on this topic is um, what, are, what is going to be the actual result? What is the collateral damage going to be with this changing attitude um, and what is what changes is it going to create you know I th- that's a really good question and I, I don't know if there's a real there's a real way to resolve that right now I think what we do have in Gen Z as well is a, a generation that's oriented totally differently from anything that we've experienced and typically like I think those things tend to end up good like for every single baby boomer that's you know wanted to talk shit on millennials there's been a hundred millennials that have you know made made the world a better place you know and i think sometimes with these new generations like early on they're all still super young right early on 
they're a little bit misguided in what they're trying to do, but they ultimately all teach us something really important about ourselves as society. So I'm looking forward to seeing how this all pans out with this generation and, you know, what, what they decide to, to end up creating as the norm for, for the next generation, Gen Alpha, coming up beneath them. Well, I think the, the thing that's interesting is if you're observing what's happening with kind of what the employment prospects are, right? Like the gig economy has been a big, you know, uh, term that's been put out there over the last few years and how a lot of these Gen Z's and younger generation, how they are generating money is not necessarily going through the traditional corporate route, um, but finding all these pockets of, of utility and convenience um, to find job prospects in. But what's interesting is, is we are not sure if the gig economy is a sustainable model because you're seeing now the impact of transitioning to a model in which there is no oversight, there are, are no best practices, your customer service quality is down, service is down, traditional restaurants and traditional businesses now are not able to, ha- to employ the same way. So now that's having an impact on the real economy where the customer service in the real hospitality industry is down too. So that's what I'm interested in seeing is, yeah, it's great, but is it sustainable? You're seeing the decline in the crypto market. A lot of these kids were trading on meme stocks in the crypto market. They're showing that they aren't sustainable models too. So what is going to be the reaction from society as kind of these alternatives are also showing that they may not be the answer or the solution yeah. to our problems. Yeah, I think the reality is we've never had the solution. You know, we we if we had it as a society, you know, we'd be doing it. <laughs> but every every iteration's you know a step closer. Ultimately, when I think about this specific thing in terms of gig economy and the workforce and the way Gen Zs are approaching life, it's a life that is very much aided by and benefited by the technological advances that we've made as a society. Like, the way of living is not possible in a different age. So I think that along those lines, likely further technological advancement is needed to really be able to optimize this new type of economy we're transitioning to, to the individual. But to your point, B, we have models that we utilize for a lot of industries that work en masse with centralized governance and ownership. But when you're working on distributed models, you have to have distributed income structures based on your performance. So rather than paying, you know, instead of paying an agency, you're paying a contractor these days, but you have this middleman software in the, that's brokering the transaction that's giving you some risk mitigation as a buyer uh, in terms of the quality of the work, and then individuals are able to price based on the value that they deliver. So it creates more flexibility and freedom for people who do want to work hard, who have great talent and can bring great value to things. But at the same time, I think evolution is necessary in the way that we value things and, the, and how quickly we're able to change the value of something yeah. uh, within an ecosystem. I mean, the old adage is, is true. You can't escape hard work and, and really expect to have sustainable success. That's just the real, unless you hit the lottery or you get lucky. The only thing that's tried and true, I, I believe, is discipline, hard work, and excellence. There are people who succeed by taking the shortcuts, but I think overall one thing about this country that I think 
um, is one of the more valuable propositions here is that if you're willing to do the work, then you can still get ahead. And I think that that's even, that's being magnified now in a society which work ethic is be, is declining. You know, when you think about yourself, you know, when everyone else is going this way, if you go the opposite direction and follow what history has said is how you get ahead. You can really, really win um, in this period of time. Yeah, I agree with that. I think this is this is a moment where there's a huge opening in terms of the work ethic that we have and what we actually get as a result from it. And this is probably the most ROI I've ever seen for just like putting in a normal work day. <laughs> it's, it's pretty nice, honestly. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, you know, minimum wage, if you're in any part of the gig economy, you're making way better than minimum wage just by driving Uber or delivering some meals. Um, than you you would have been if you were a taxi driver or if you were a delivery driver for a traditional restaurant. Hundred <laughs> percent. And dude, like it can get even easier than that. Like the way society is now, if if you're just a little in one ounce clever, you can do really well. Like I was talking with a friend just the other day, trying to get a cleaning cleaning person for my um, for my apartment, and I was. Um, I was looking on this app called Thumbtack. They have all these different cleaning people. And I was just like, how easy would it be for me to call one of these people and uh, and say, hey, if I, you know, get you a get you a cleaning cleaning deal where it's one location and you have like five different places or ten different places. Like, let's say you clean three houses a day. What if I can get you ten that are all right next to each other? you know, will you give me 20% of your take or whatever that looks like? How easy would it be for me as a high school kid to call up apartment complexes in the city that I live in and say, hey, do you guys have a cleaner? If not, I work with this cleaning company, make your own name, make your own website, make your own entity, and just subcontract out the work and subcontract it to highly rated contractors on these apps that you're already working off of and then leverage some a platform like a thumbtack or like one of these brokering platforms and their risk mitigation so that you're offloading all risk of the business as well like just being clever like that and brokering a couple couple dots and really just like taking advantage of the fact that most people don't know about a lot of the tools in the gig economy can make you a ton of money these days yeah just comes down to whether all this is, is sustainable it's unlikely not um because i think the free flow of cash um, that came from COVID and um, government support is drying out. I'm just very interested to see what happens in this period over the next two to three years or um, two to five years. Also, you know, with the decline in actual real labor force, like infrastructure is a major problem in America. And if there are less people out here doing willing to do construction work, willing to do the, the work that's kind of the backbone of society that keeps it moving, um, what the future holds. Maybe a lot of it gets automated, um, but this is the other thing by kind of taking this position that Gen Z is taking is you are definitely opening the door for government to become bigger and bigger uh, of a big brother, like in 19, like the 1984 thing, which is, hey, you know, the reason that we're using robots to do all the construction work now is because nobody's willing to work. Um, and so there's just a lot of those type of questions, but the college enrollment thing is very interesting be for me because 
I see both sides of it. I am a proponent for myself. I feel like um, the the value in having uh, two degrees is really, as a minority specifically, is people cannot question your credentials in the same way. They're forced to respect you. Um, but in terms of the actual value of the education and how much of the coursework I use, it's pretty minimal on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's true. And I think there's there's a lot of ways to learn and there's a lot of ways to be able to have things that people value. Like, I've been able to be fortunate enough to have a lot of awards and recognitions under my belt that give me give me the same same kind of stamp as if I had gone through and and done the degrees and and taken that path as well so you know you can learn in the classroom but you can also learn experientially and your experiential work can be valued by society um, sometimes to a higher degree than what's achievable in the classroom and so it just it's important to I think do what's right for you and I'm curious with the Gen Z's and the way they interact with the gig economy, there's definitely means for, for people. It's, a, it's an adaptable generation. As long as you're willing to reinvent your business model consistently as society progresses, there's a lot of room in entrepreneurship for many, many, many more people to participate. You know, 65% of the businesses, um, or 65% of employees in the U.S. are employed to small and medium-sized businesses. That's our economy is entirely founded and run on this. And it's just the nature of these businesses are changing because of the advent of technology. And so I am bullish on this with Gen Z. I'm very bullish on them as a generation, but I'm curious as well, because I don't think to your point B, I don't think the current format is the final format, but I, I think this is another step on the way to wherever we're going. Yeah very true um but it's it's true for society it's also got to be a societal shift it's one thing to desire wanting liberty independence but i think the thing that a lot of people don't understand and we talk about this as entrepreneurs all the time is most people aren't actually prepared for what it actually means to be completely self-sufficient and self-reliant it is a lot of pressure it requires a lot of self-discipline it's not just speaking it because if you're just saying i'm going to drive uber you're not realizing it but you're not necessarily really taking control you're allowing uber to dictate a lot of uber drivers are facing this pressure now as the models change as uber and lyft are having more a lot more challenges being profitable with government regulations hitting them a lot of drivers are frustrated that the profit margins aren't the same what do you think about that like the the amount of regulation that has played into that space do you think it's been for the betterment of these these employees these uh these people who are trying to be trying to be drivers and delivery delivery drivers and such well i think overall i think that i think it's it's definitely (laughs) the model's not working so that's the other thing. If you look at all of these companies... Yeah, financially, it doesn't make it sense. It doesn't. Uber is, is struggling. Lyft is struggling. DoorDash is struggling. If you actually look at the, the key players... Airbnb. Airbnb is struggling. Like, that's where, you know, when I highlight my concerns, it's like, in America, something needs to be profitable um, as a business for it to be able to be sustainable. Um, and that's the thing here is these companies have gone public, they're struggling and, and those struggles aren't, aren't going away. How is this, this 
group or this society going to adjust to that? Because it was easy when all you had to do was go sign up for Uber and have a car and car insurance. It's well, and the reality, too, with Uber specifically is that that company doesn't need to be the size it is. The number of employees they have, the amount they pay their employees, this is just an app that brokers a, a car ride. Well, that goes that goes back to what my original point was, is, that, is America as a society, do they really understand what autonomy is and what's required to be... Because these these people who are saying this are still signing up with Uber, still signing up with Airbnb to be the broker for their services. So is it really that much different than going and working for a corporation if you're not truly... T- you're, they're doing that because they don't want to do the work to find their own customers, to 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 do all of the 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 hard work behind the work scenes work to maintain a business um, and 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 keep your licenses, do all of that. I don't think they say that they're ready for autonomy, but based on behavior patterns, I don't I don't think we as a society in America are really ready for that. We like having Big Brother um, kind of dictate. And yeah, I be think, responsible. I think for a us. lot of people do, but my point's not on the on the drivers. It's actually on the employee count of Uber and these other tech companies. I think what what is important to happen in the next few years is for the amount that developers are getting paid at these companies that they're spending on marketing dollars. That needs to shrink because, like you said, like Uber is a glorified brokering app. A lot of these gig economy platforms are. And the way that they interacted with venture capital made them extremely overcapitalized to allow them to get this really rapid growth and, and own a huge portion of market share. But the reality is that as margins shrink, the drivers are gonna gonna you know push back. They're gonna lose high quality drivers, which will worsen their product if they pay them less. They have to pay them a certain amount. The the company has to look in the mirror and say, well, maybe this business model was not that profitable from the beginning. Yep. Maybe the medallion structure showed what the actual financials of this industry are for it to support. We're just going to replicate that and maybe optimize it a little bit because we're smarter with our technology. We can have less employees and we can have better margins as a corporation. But the reality is that like, if you look at a Fiverr, if you look at an Upwork, I think platforms like those are more representative of where the future of the gig economy is going because they don't try to be more than they are. But Uber- they, are, they aren't succeeding either. They're having tremendous financial financial well what do you need to run fiverr is my thing right if they're fiverr is a great model yeah fiverr is a great model. same with upwork you're just taking a you're just brokering letting people go on and find themselves like it's the same thing with rideshare but the the thing that's interesting about the upwork and fiverr is to be successful on there you actually have to have developed a real skill yeah Um, and that's the thing that i think people are taking for granted that there is no escaping the work that's required to be employable to be someone that somebody is willing to pay for your work what do you what do you do when you go on upwork you evaluate the quality of the talent and the talent that has done the most work has done the most development are the people who are getting paid um, and that, so I think those are definitely meritocracies and um, it should be the same with drivers ultimately yeah. like that's where you know, these apps just aren't there yet. I think there's evolution to be had. Like, it, Airbnb is a little bit better because at least you see ratings on what you're going to purchase before you purchase it, and they're taking their brokering fee. But the issue is that 
when you're when you're essentially like taking away that corporate oversight you're also putting more on the individual there's more risk on the individual and there's more risk on you as the customer versus the older model yeah that's the biggest thing here in in terms of how does our society value customer service and as a result of the gig economy customer service continues to decline rapidly and you're also seeing it because profit margins are shrinking now uber for example they disclose to the drivers where the drop up is going to be and so they can accept or decline based on that before the model was you didn't know where a driver was going until they picked you up which i think i think it's fair you know what i mean it's fair but what it's doing at the end at the end is you're seeing it happen over and over even like i remember when i first got lyft what i loved about lyft was i could go on the app and if i had a bad experience or a driver dropped me i would i would just have to communicate and would immediately be canceled when you and this happens at lax a lot and i'm sure you're familiar in busy airports the drivers will accept the ride and then drop it or wait until you cancel the drive then it looks and then you have to go through a whole process it's not as easy to communicate with lyft and a lot of people aren't willing to go through the process it takes to just be treated fairly you shouldn't have to pay for a ride when it wasn't picked up but these are kind of the impact same thing with doordash drivers taking on so much that they don't care if they're delivering you cold food well it's the same thing that you're you're actually saying on the driver's side is that the customer also needs the opportunity to choose amongst the drivers so like i would happily pay five dollars more to be with a driver that's in the top five percentile of ratings of drivers you know what i mean yeah maybe 10 bucks more right like i don't know but i think that's where that's where it's there's evolution to be had in the model i think the, the structure of these businesses, they're going to try and look like they're taking losses because they don't want to trim their staff. They don't want to trim their spend on marketing. They don't want to trim a lot of the things that they're doing. But the reality is that these businesses can be run by a team of 10 to 20 people. They don't require this massive, massive ecosystem of thousands of employees and all these Silicon Valley offices. That's just the ego of the founders playing into the mix and the ego of venture capitalists funding that you know there's many more capital efficient ways to operate the gig economy so from that standpoint i think it requires like what we're going through which is a massive massive adjustment in financials across our society for everybody to get real about what businesses really need from an employment standpoint instead of having these really inefficient structures yeah trying to support them yeah, we'll see how all of this plays out, but ultimately, you know, the history repeats itself. Every great empire falls, um, and uh, there there is true risk in in America right now because you know there are there is collateral damage from not having people go into um, the science based fields the same. You know, research research and development. Um, is kind of the the Midas touch that the United States has has always had, and quite frankly, a lot of that has come through the funding that these universities have for research. Um, so we'll see if we'll continue to be a technology innovator, um, or if we're going to see a decline in the quality of uh, of talent as well in specified industries. Yeah. And just to add to that, I think one one component of 
the fact that we do have access to so many content creators and so many like you know specialists at the drop of a hat through all these online tools is that if you have innovation of thought like this is where i think like a liberal arts education has started to be more valuable than anything else because if you understand people society and you have a bigger picture view on how things are going you have now the resources to hire the the technical talent that you need to get a job done and if you're a technically inclined person you have many people who are trying to build things that can reach you easily and see the quality of your work easily much in in a way where you know these technologically inclined people who have the dollars meeting the technology they're like the tech inclined you know say service providers that was a big gap like it's very hard for somebody who is just like really in their work all the time to meet the people who are actually going to pay them to do it which is why they're they're getting stuck at corporations so i think we have a lot more talent coming out i think from an entrepreneurial perspective that's where i do bet on america because we have this this amazing ability to look at a bigger picture of things and i think as long as we continue to try and solve the right like society's problems the right way we have probably the biggest the biggest opportunity in front of us for entrepreneurship that we've ever had because of the ease of access to these tools now the question is will will folks take take advantage of it will they bring further innovation to the market but i think i think it's possible i think the the nature of innovation's changing where the technological innovation that happens with the knowledge of manufacturing it's only going to happen at the uh at the college level or at the uh at really at the international level domestically it's going to have to become a thought center for this country to continue to thrive 100% i mean i think that that's this is a, a ongoing conversation obviously we could continue continue this dialogue uh probably for the next few hours and still not reach reach a conclusion but i think these are the important conversations you need to have with yourself, with your peers. We are in an interesting phase um, in the world um, overall. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity. If you just don't look at it as doom and gloom and actually um, discipline yourself, think through things logically, and make decisions uh, that are in the best interest of yourself and not let society dictate what's right or wrong for you. If you still see the value in a co college education, don't let society pressure you into saying that that's not valuable for you. Um, and, and that's probably the, the best takeaway. And if you are someone who isn't interested in going to college, then at a, very, at a much younger age, it, it, you should start thinking about, okay, what am I going to invest in uh, to make sure I have a sustainable livelihood for the next 20, 30, 40 years. Because as much as people say money doesn't matter, um, if you're going to live in America, you have to make a certain amount of money just to be able to afford the necessities and live a healthy and valuable life. That's spot on, man. With that being said, as always, remember to be you and you as fly. Stay moving. Pilot Boys out. <laughs>